We're going to carry on in our study of the questions of Jesus. And so uh, last week we were looking at beam-eyed moat pickers. And uh, I, want to, uh, I want to draw attention to one final thought on that before we move into our next question. Uh, I feel it's very pertinent, so I'd like a couple of scriptures, Galatians 6, 1 to 4. Daniel, Richard, get me uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. Jake, get me uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And Matthias, Matthias get me uh, James 5, 19 and 20. And then somebody get me uh, Luke 6, 46 to 49, Louis, and that will bring us into the next question. But uh, what I wanted to point out that we didn't get to last week was that uh, not only do we have to avoid the pharisaical trap of uh, moat picking, but we also have to look at this text and see that there's something very positive actually being spoken here as well, because this text that we looked at in Matthew uh, uh, actually holds the key to uh, spiritual deliverance and helping other people, ministry. Uh, Jesus does not say in that text, uh, uh, take the beam out of your own eye and leave the moat in the other person's eye. What he says is, take the beam out of your eye so that you can remove the moat from your brother's eye. And what you and I have to understand here is that personal holiness is the key to genuine ministry. If you're really going to be able to help people, you yourself have got to deal with the issues of your own life. And the old saying is that the deliverer must be delivered. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that the issues that plague mankind are spiritual in nature. And if you yourself are still spiritually bound, you don't have the wherewithal, you don't have the discernment, you don't have the power to actually bring deliverance to the person with the mote in their eye. You have to deal with the issue of personal holiness if you're going to be effective in ministry on any level. On any level. This is the key. Jesus didn't say, uh, take the, only be self-concerned and self-absorbed. He said, get rid of the problems in your life so that you are able to help and to bring deliverance to other people who have needs in their lives. How many of you ever had a moat in your eye? We all know you've had beams in your eyes, but moats in your eyes. Uh, you know, I used to be a, a cabinet maker, and uh, almost on a daily basis I'd end up with moats in my eyes. And uh, some of them are incredibly painful and disabling. Uh, if you get something stuck in your eye and it scratches your retina, I mean, it, your eye is a mess for days. And so we don't want to leave people bound even in small issues in their life. Okay? And so, but, but in able to minister well to those small issues, we have to deal with the issues in our own lives. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures just to drive the point home. Galatians 6, 1 to 4. Brethren, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him. In a spirit of meekness, being mindful of your own liabilities. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For uh, for if a man thinks 
had rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. In essence, Paul is lining out the positive side of Jesus' statement about removing the beam from your own eye and able to uh, better enable you to uh, remove the moat from someone else's eye. He's saying, in, in essence, you have to be very, very careful that you recognize your own liabilities and your own inadequacies. You have to be very careful that when you go to them, you go in a spirit of meekness, not in pride, not puffed up, not with some kind of a self-aggrandizing perception, but you have to minister to people's needs. And he talks about this capacity of spiritual discernment that you have to have in order to properly minister. When you have a moat in your eye, you are spiritually blinded, you do not have the discernment to cut through uh, and to bring deliverance in people's lives. You are this. This is why Jesus talked about the eye. He, he's talking about your ability to perceive and your ability to discern. Okay, and so if you're not taking care of the issues in your own life, you lose that capacity. First Corinthians two fourteen and sixteen. The natural man can't receive the things of God. They are foolishness to him because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, but he's rightly judged by no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord, but, uh, uh, but we have the mind of of Christ. And so again, he's talking about this issue of your ability to discern spiritual things. If you are carnal, if you live in the flesh, you cannot receive the things of God. You cannot have the mind of God to bring that grace into someone else's life. And so uh, it's absolutely critical that we are walking in our own personal spirituality and our, our own personal consecration. 1 Corinthians 3:1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. He's addressed a number already. He, in the, that early in the book, he's already addressed a number of problems with their flesh and with their carnality. And he says, you know, I can't even, I can't even bring spiritual uh, truth into your life because you're carnal. So, you know, transpose that or take that to its next logical conclusion. It's very clear that uh, if, if you're living in the flesh, if you're living carnally, you're not, you're not going to have the spiritual truth that brings freedom in people's lives. James 5, 19 and 20 is the ultimate motivation for you and I to be dealing with uh, the issues in others' lives, not for some kind of self-gratification, not to exalt ourselves, not to show that we are spiritual. This is the sum and substance of, of what ministry is all about and why we even deal with the motes in other people's eyes. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns it back, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error in his way is a saving soul. If any of you wander from the truth and one of you turns him back, let him know uh, that you have uh, saved the soul of him that has entered into sin and wandered uh, from truth. And you have covered a multitude of sins. And so, uh, you know, the, the exercise of uh, discerning and judging someone else's problem is uh, always approached from a, a perception of, of uh, bringing healing, bringing ministry, 
Uh, it's not a question of uh, uh, criticizing and suspicion and all of that. It's a question of uh, someone having a legitimate need and you in a, being in a position to help them. Okay? And so many, many times, you know, we as Christians become very censorious. And we, we talked about that last week, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it here. But we have to be very careful about our motives and our approach and what this is all about. God has given us the ability to discern sin, right, wrong, justice, judgment. God's given us those things, but it's not to bring condemnation and ruin into people's lives. It's not to, uh, you know, overthrow them. It's to heal them and to raise them up. Okay, so I just wanted to uh, make that point, uh, and we didn't have time last week, is, is you have to deal with this issue if you're going to properly and effectively minister to others. Any question on any of that before we move on? Yeah, done. Just one comment. Uh, since I was early in my salvation, I, I've been praying for you know, spiritual discernment. And I feel in many cases God, God gives me you know, some spiritual discernment. But only in recent years have I found out that along with that, I need godly wisdom to apply it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so Don says uh, he's always prayed for spiritual discernment, but only in the last few years he's realized that not only does he need discernment, but he needs wisdom to know what to do with that discernment. He needs wisdom to know, should I speak, should I not speak, how do I deal with this, how do I approach this? Jeff. Yeah, um, you know, I think what I have trouble with is the stealth beams. The stealth what? The stealth beams. (laughs) Yeah, this is what we talked about last week at some length. But the, uh, I believe the reason why Jesus chose the metaphors that he did was uh, to make it very, very clear that we are dealing with stuff that is discernible in our own lives. Uh, a beam in your eye is hard to miss. Okay? And so we're not talking about some blind spot. Although I must admit, uh, in conjunction with what Jeff says is sometimes because of our refusal to deal with that beam, it becomes a blind spot. We actually are blinded to that beam because we've left it there so long. We've grown very accustomed to walking around like this. And so we, we no longer recognize that this is, a, uh, this is a problem. But I do believe that Jesus is talking about very, very clear issues in our lives when he's talking about beams in our lives. However... Uh, we, we, this actually, I believe, moves us into the question of a moat because I think the stealth beam is actually a moat. It's something sometimes we don't even discern. But someone can see it in us. And if they minister correctly to us, they can help us greatly. How many of you have ever been helped by someone who pointed out a problem you had, but they did it the right way? They didn't assault you. They didn't violate you. They helped you. What a, what a great thing... To have somebody review your work, you know, from time to time. No, you're putting the wrong, you're putting the carburetor on the wrong side of the car. That's why these cars aren't running. You know, it's good to have somebody who knows something uh, actually speak into our life and say, you know what, man, this is why you, this is why you are so vexed. 
And so many times, brethren can help us right there. So many times, someone who's close to us, loves us, they care about us, and they speak the right word, and man, it, it can bring deliverance. It can set you free. So this is a wonderful thing. Mark. Right. Or whatever, but you have to take some time to not just quickly jump on something, but to actually consider or ponder something before you actually open your mouth. Yeah, and so he says, uh, Jesus says, uh, to judge not by appearance, but to judge rightly. Paul said the same thing in Corinthians. He who is spiritual judges rightly. And so uh, it's very important to have a, a discerning spirit and, and wisdom that knows what to deal with. It's a very interesting comment made by John, I believe, in 1 John 5. He talks about praying for someone who you see in sin. And he says, I'm not talking about sin unto death, but I'm talking about sins that aren't unto death. Interesting thought. Sins that aren't unto death. And there's a dynamic here. There's a, uh, there's a need to discern, is this an issue that I need to address or is this something that I can let God deal with or is it something that maybe we can put off because, uh, you know, uh, I, I need to get him to stop shacking up before I can minister to him about reading his Bible, you know. That, you know what I'm talking about? That kind of thing. You've got to use some discernment and some wisdom when you're dealing with these issues, okay? Okay, so that's all the time I want to spend on that. But I just want to make that point that Jesus didn't leave it like uh, don't ever mess with anybody's moat, just make sure that you deal with moats correctly. Okay? And that is what God wants us to do. He wants us to help each other. Amen? My, my goal in life is to dance around the throne with every one of you in eternity and uh, to add to these numbers. Right? And that should be what motivates every one of us in this place is we want to see people make it to heaven. We don't want to run them out of church. Amen? So some folks, it's like they have the gift of running people out of church. <laughs> That's a gift we don't need. Okay. All right. Let's look at the next question uh, that we want to consider this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings, but doesn't do them, I'll tell you what he's like. He who does my word is like a man who digs down and builds a foundation on a rock. And when all of the trials of life come at him, he stands. But he who hears my word but does not make application is like a man who builds on the sand or builds on the earth. He doesn't dig down to rock bed. And when trials come and problems come, his house cannot stand. So we have in this question, why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not do the things I do, the very core of the debate of works versus faith. 
This is the very heart of uh, the, the issue that has gone on uh, through the ages, uh, uh, works versus faith. There's an entire school of thought that is prevalent today and has uh, uh, made its appearance on the Christian landscape throughout the centuries uh, that says we are saved by faith, and faith is simply believing. Faith is simply believing in something. That's it. There's nothing more. It is a mental assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and God raised Him from the dead for our sins and for our salvation. And it, that is what uh, salvation comes down to is if you believe those facts, if you grasp those facts, acknowledge those facts that Jesus died for your sins, rose again, then you are saved. Now, we absolutely agree that we are saved by faith and by faith alone. That nothing we do can save us. The question comes when you define faith. What does it mean to believe? Is it just mental assent? Is it simply saying, well, I believe that. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again. That's it, right? Is that the essence of faith? Or is faith something more substantial than that? See, if it's saving faith, if it's real faith, if it's faith that honestly believes, it has to play into the way we live. It has to. It has to affect us internally. John MacArthur, in his book, Faith Works, which is a very commendable work, he, uh, he, says, he makes this statement, grace that does not affect one's behavior is not the grace of God. Grace that does not affect one's behavior is not the grace of God. The core issue of the works versus faith debate is how do you define faith? What is faith? Okay, Carol, you're, you're itching to say something here, so we'll go ahead and open Very, very good. It's not even a question of required. It's a question of a natural flow of believing it. It's not like now, okay, I believe the ceiling's going to cave in on me, and so what do I do? Do I leave the building or do I stay? It's a natural response. Believing something causes a reciprocal action on my part. And in our text, Jesus addresses what it means to accept Jesus as Lord. He brings it right down. And uh, to believe that He is the living God and to fail to recognize the demand of obedience that that implies is insanity. It's just like what Carol's talking about. Okay, He's God, but I don't have to listen to Him. Okay, He's God, but I don't have to obey Him. I don't have to do anything He says. I, I know He's God. He's God. He's the living God. But, but that should have no bearing on the way that I live. That is absolute insanity. It's like being in the military and saying, I know that a man with four stars on his hat is the general. But I'm not going to salute him and I'm not going to do anything he tells me to do. Well, you'll end up either in the brig or executed. 
Because the recognition of those four stars is not the recognition of a symbol, it's the recognition of authority. And to say that Jesus is God is not to recognize a title or a theological position, it is to recognize his authority, who he is. He's God. If he's God, that means what he says goes. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I tell you to do? The position is preposterous. To any objective observer, the notion that you can accept Jesus as the living God and as Lord of your life and yet not respond to anything he says is absolute lunacy. And yet this is the position that perhaps the majority of believers today holds to. That's what's frightening. Is that the majority of professing Christians today do not live in obedience to the will of God. They don't do what Jesus says to do. And so in essence, they are living in defiance of this very statement of Jesus. Let's get a couple of scriptures. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Sam. Uh, Matthew 25, 1 to 13, Aaron. First uh, John 2, 3, Dennis. Ezekiel 33, 30 to 33, Jeff. James 1, 22 and 25, Don. And uh, we'll hold right there for the moment. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It's one of the most frightening scriptures in the Bible to me. Because these people are standing in judgment and they are saying, we called you Lord. And then they enumerate certain actions that only Christians can do. Think about that. God does not dispute that they prophesied in his name. You can't prophesy in the name of God. Uh, Certainly there are false prophets that use his name, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying, we spoke for you, and God doesn't say, no, no, you were a false prophet. You didn't really speak for me. They say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? You cannot cast out demons. You may be able to manipulate them. You may be able to play with them. But you can't cast them out. This is what the accusation that they brought against Jesus. He casts out devils by Beelzebub. Jesus said a house divided cannot stand. You can't do that. It doesn't work. Devils don't cast out devils. Okay? And so you may be able to play with spiritual forces. You may be able to manipulate. Uh, We're all aware of false healing and things like that. But you can't cast out devils. And God does not take issue with their claims. He doesn't say to them, Oh, no, you didn't really cast out devils. You You were just going through supernatural rigmarole. He doesn't even question that. What he says to them is, No, no, no. The problem was my lordship. The problem was my lordship. You didn't do... My will. You did lots of things. You just didn't do what I told you to do. That's scary. You did lots of Christian things. Came to church. Read your Bible. Prayed. Fasted. You did all kinds of things. You just didn't do what I told you to do. I told you 
to plant yourself in China. And you know I told you to do that. And you refused to do that. You wanted to stay home and make a lot of money. And so you stayed, and you stayed and did all the Christian things. But you didn't do what I told you to do. (laughs) Okay? You avoided this sin. You avoided this sin. You avoided this sin. But you never let me be the Lord of your life. You never let me call the shots. You never let me dictate to you my will and my purposes. You embraced all the Christian theology. The problem was you never let me be your Lord. I recently was informed of a couple who uh, have been in this fellowship for many, many years. And they've come into conflict with someone. And so now they're praying about whether they should come back to church. They're praying about it. I'm praying about whether I should come to church. Does anybody see the problem here? There's there's two problems that I have. Number one is there's no question you should be in church. The Bible says very clearly in Hebrews 10.25, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. There is no question you belong in church. Well, that's not what I'm praying about. I know I belong in church. I'm just not sure I belong in this one anymore. So you've been in this church for ten years and now God's changed his mind. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Okay? Um, To my understanding, when God puts us in the body, he puts us where he wants us. Nowhere in Scripture does it even vaguely hint at when you come into conflict with someone, then God is telling you to move on. Now, what the Bible says very, very clearly is forgive them and work it out. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say pray about where you belong now. So right up until this conflict, you were convinced you're in the will of God, but now we have a conflict, and now we're praying about it. See, these are the kind of games we play with the will of God. And praying about being here is subterfuge. It's a smokescreen. There's nothing to pray about. Okay? The issue is, will you deal with the issues of your heart and obey God? No, I don't want to obey God. So what I have to do is I have to have new destiny. This is religious subterfuge. This is a religious game. Jesus looks at this and he says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I tell you to do? You're a hot preacher, fine, but why don't you do what I tell you to do? You're a powerful Christian, fine, but why don't you do what I tell you to do? Because falling short there is falling short completely. Don't claim my lordship in your life. And and can't you just see the logic here? This makes perfect sense to me. There is a logic here that you can't fight with. Why do you say, Lord, you claim my authority in your life, but you won't obey it? The logic is irrefutable. You can't, there's nothing you can do with that scripture. There's a lot of hands going up. Hold your thoughts. We're going to open in just a minute, but I want to get these uh, thoughts out completely. Matthew 25, 1 to 13.
ten good virgins. We've all uh, heard this parable and read this parable. Ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to make his appearance. Uh, this is uh, all revolving around the Jewish ceremony, and so there's some of it that's a little foreign to us. But, but the overarching uh, issue that's being spoken here is preparedness, living in a condition that when the bridegroom comes, you're ready for that return. And so there are five that are wise. They buy their oil. They're ready for his return. They've taken care of business. There are five that are foolish. They uh, don't have oil. They have to run out and get it at the last minute. When they come back, the bridegroom has already come. They weren't where they needed to be. They weren't doing what they needed to do. The bridegroom has already come. So they go over to the bridegroom's house to catch up, knock on the door, let us into Lord, Lord. He uses the exact same language. Lord, Lord. And he says, I don't know who you are. You can't come in. Now, there's not a, there's not a question of their virginity. There's not a question of, uh, uh, you know, some horrible thing that they've done wrong. Uh, the issue was simply they didn't obey their Lord. Their Lord said, prepare. They said, no, I've got other business I'm taking care of. I don't have time to prepare for heaven. I'm much too busy taking care of problems on earth. And so when the Lord shows, he says, why do you call me Lord? They're using all the correct verbiage, but the, the problem is they're not taking care of the affairs of their life. Okay? So at the very heart of the debate of works and lordship uh, is the question of will. It's the question of God's will. That's at the very heart of our salvation. And you cannot dissociate your salvation from the will of God. 1 John 2, 3 as an incredible statement made here. Now by this we know that we know him. By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments. By this we know that we know him. See, my question to you is what assurance is there that your salvation is real where there's no obedience? What assurance do you have? Well, I have the inner witness of the Holy Ghost. I know that, uh, that I'm a Christian. See, I wear this cross that my mother gave me, and I, I have a Bible that's this big, and I know that I'm a Christian. John says, you know that you're a Christian because of the way you live, because you keep His commandments. What do you base the legitimacy of your salvation on when Jesus hasn't saved you from anything yet? If he hasn't saved you from the world, the flesh, the devil, then how are you so sure that you're saved? If he hasn't saved you from the bondage of sin, if he hasn't saved your life from the mess it was and given you a new life, then how can you have assurance that... He'll save you when you cross that line into eternity. Well, I, 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 my theology is right. Yeah, but you have nothing to base that on. You have nothing that can say to your heart, you know what? God is real in my life. It's all theory. It's all theory. So you have a theory that Jesus has saved you, but he hasn't saved you from anything yet. Nothing experiential, nothing real, nothing that you can put your hand on. Now, John says that's not going to wash. If you're going to know that you're saved, then you're going to know this by keeping his word. 
Jesus doesn't leave anything up in the air. He defines for us exactly what he's talking about. Hearing his word and doing it. Hearing his word and doing it. This isn't some terrifying threat of missing the will of God uh, somehow and being eternally damned. You were supposed to go to Bulgaria. You thought he said Bolivia. And uh, so you ended up in the wrong place. And now you're going to hell because you went to the wrong place. Okay, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay, Jesus is very, very clear. Hearing the word and doing it. That's what we're talking about. Knowing the will of God, hearing the will of God, being confronted by the Holy Ghost, this is the way you should live and not doing it. That's the issue. Okay? All right, let's open for questions. There's lots of hands. Pete. Absolutely. So what they've done is they've reapplied it uh, to their will rather than the will of God, which is real, real dangerous stuff. Mark. Okay, in real relationship, that's the key. Okay, that comes back to the question, what's real faith? What's real relationship? How many of you ever talked to somebody and uh, you've had a conversation with somebody, but neither one of you said a word to each other? You know what I'm talking about? It's like you're saying this, and it's very clear. The opposite of of, uh, uh, listening is, you know, is talking. Yeah, you know, it's a, it, it's a, actually somebody once said the opposite of listening is not talking. The opposite of listening is waiting, so that your turn can come, so you can talk. You know, listen to a word they're saying, and so so you're just, you know, here's here you are. You're talking to this person, and uh, you're not relating to them at all because they're not listening to a word you're saying. They're just waiting for their opportunity to say something different. Okay, relationship implies uh, uh, genuine communication. I can speak into your life. Okay? All right. Uh, Daniel. Uh, my job, there's a number of guys I've witnessed to from time to time, and they claim they're Christians, but they, their lifestyle is totally contradicted. Okay. Daniel says on his job, he works with a bunch of guys who claim to be Christians, but their lifestyle totally contradicts that. So I've told them, well, you know what? Uh, how can you say you, you know, love God, and yet you're totally sinning? And their excuse is that it's the way I am. Okay, so, so the, Daniel says, how can you live like that and claim Jesus is your Lord? And they say, well, it's the way I am, and Jesus is going to have to li- live with me the way I am. So we, we have a 50% divorce rate in our culture for that very logic. Because there comes a point when your spouse says, I don't have to live with the way you are. 
right? Okay? Uh, uh, Very, very clear in Scripture, God uses the metaphor of divorce and adultery. And he says, you know what? You're, You're off committing spiritual adultery, doing your own thing, and I don't have to live with that. I don't have to take you the way you are. In fact, I never intended to take you the way you are. I intended to change you. The reason why you and I aren't getting along is because of the way you are. The reason why I can't talk to you now is because uh, I am holy and you're not. And that creates a gulf between us that I can't cross because I'm holy. I can't dwell with you. So I have to make you holy to bring you into my presence. And if I can't do that, I can't accept you the way you are. Jesus didn't die to leave you the way you are. Okay. Sue. Very good. Right. So here I'm, I've done the right religious thing with these, uh, with the spoil, and I've offered it to God, and God says, that doesn't interest me. What interests me is doing my will. Hearing my word and doing it. Hearing my word and doing it. Let's have, uh, uh, somebody get me James 1, 22 to 25. Uh, Rod, somebody, uh, did I give that to somebody already? James? Okay, Rod, get me 1 Samuel 15, 22. Uh, Matthew 12:50, Eric, Dave, get me uh, Luke uh, 8:21, Jake, get me John 14:23, Matthias, get me John 15:14, Richard, get me Hebrews 5:9, back here, Jake, get me uh, 1 Peter 4:2, and we'll hold that. That'll probably get us through the morning. So. so the issue, again, I just want to keep turning your mind to this issue. The issue is hearing the Word of God and doing it. This is the issue at the core of Jesus' Lordship. This is the issue at the core of legitimate faith. This is the issue at the core of true salvation. It is the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and the implications that that brings into our life. If He is Lord, then He must be obeyed. Not just listen to. Not just listen to. How many of you remember when your dad used to scold you and you listened to him? But that's all you did. You just listened. And that's as far as it went. As soon as he turned your back, you did exactly what he told you not to do. There is a difference between listening. See, this is the great danger of Christians as we listen to three sermons a week. And then we have revivals, and then we have conferences. Man, we listen. We are listening freaks. We, we all got ears this big, you know? We got ears, man. Call us Dumbo the Elephant. We got ears. The problem isn't your ears. The problem is the heart that hears but will not do. 
And this is a long-standing problem with the people of God. Ezekiel 33, 30 to 33. As for you, son of man, uh, uh, he's talking to Ezekiel, the prophet, and he's saying, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the buzz in town. Everybody's talking about you. And they speak to one another, and they say, you've got to hear this guy. Man, this guy is a silver-tongued orator. He is a prophet of prophets. Man, he is speaking for God. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you and they listen to everything you say and they don't do any of it. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them an entertainer. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when it comes to pass, they'll know that uh, you are speaking for God. Uh, and when he speaks of this coming to pass, he's talking about all the judgment that has preceded these statements. And so he's saying, you know, the problem is uh, people have an entertainment mindset about the preaching of the word. They come and they listen and they, they commend you. And, they, man, that was so powerful. And, man, you really discerned it right. You, you cut right to the chase. You, you really speak for God. Blah, 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 blah. And he says the bottom line is it's all just religious entertainment. You've tickled their religious fancy, but they haven't embraced a word you said. And God says, I have a problem with that. I have a real problem with that. James 1, 22 to 25. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you are a hearer only, you're like a man who goes and looks at himself in the mirror and straightaway forgets what he looked like. But if you look into the, the law of love, if you look into the will and the per- works of God, and you, con- <coughs> excuse me, you continue in them and become a doer of them, Okay, then uh, you're made perfect and God's grace uh, is functioning. It's a very interesting portion of Scripture. The, the word doers of the word is the word poiete. And uh, he doesn't say to hear the word in the moment. What, what, what he's literally saying is be a word doer. So it's not a question of, you know what, I read somewhere that I'm supposed to uh, give to the poor and here's a panhandler and I'm going to give to the poor. Okay, what he's saying is not the moment, not the work of an incident where you say, there, I've done the word of God. He's saying, by character, by nature, do the word of God. 
This is a bent in your spirit. This is a bent in your character to obedience and to doing what God has chosen you to do. <clears throat> Be a word to doer. The, the Greek word for a hearer is the word akroates. And it, it's the word that's used for a student who audits a class. So what happens when a student audits a class is he goes and he listens to the material, but he's not held responsible for the tests, and he's not held responsible to turn in any homework. All he has to do is go and listen. He says, don't approach your Christianity that way as if you were just auditing a class, because you are going to be tested. You've got to have the right answers in your character, in your spirit, in your nature. Christianity isn't something you audit, it's something you do. Okay? Robert Johnstone's commentary on James says, Knowing uh, that the study of divine truth through reading the Bible, giving attendance on public ordinances of grace and otherwise is a most important duty, is indeed the road leading toward the gate of everlasting life. They allow themselves through man's natural, but through man's natural aversion, to all genuine spirituality, they are not persuaded by the word. I'm sorry, they are persuaded by the wicked one that this is the sum of all Christian duty and itself the gate to life, so that in mere hearing they enter in and all is well with them. To rest satisfied with the means of grace without yielding up our hearts to that power as means, so as to receive the grace and exhibit it working in our lives, is manifest folly of the same class as that of a workman who would content himself with possessing tools without using them. Madness of the same class as that of a man perishing with hunger who should exult in having bread in his hands without eating it. But folly and madness is immeasurably greater than these as the work of God transcends the importance of work on earth uh, and life with Christ, uh, the perishable existence of earth. So what he's saying uh, is that it's absolute insanity to have the means of a changed life and not to use it. And not to make application of your life. It's like, a, it's, it's like Frank Richardson going to work with his tool belt on and, and never raising a hammer. He's the first carpenter that came to mind. I'm sure he raises hammers. He does a great job from what I hear. But it would be absolute folly for him to step on the job and say, Well, I'm here. i got my tools. You, you wouldn't build anything that way, would you? And just because you have your tools uh, is absolutely uh, useless. It would be very foolish to sit down to a table full of food, starving to death, and not eat anything. Well, i got the food. Well, I've got the food. It's right here. James likens someone who hears and does not do or a not doer of the word as someone who looks in the mirror and straight away forgets what he looks like or does nothing about it. So you go to the mirror, you look at yourself, and you see you have part of yesterday's lunch on your chin. And you go, that's disgusting. Where'd that egg yolk come from? And you walk away. And you don't do anything to wipe it off. You don't do anything. You look in the mirror and you look like me after a good preaching. You know what I'm talking about? And you don't, you don't lift a comb, you don't lift a brush, you just walk away looking like Albert Einstein fresh from a wind tunnel. And so you don't, you never deal with anything that you see. 
Expositor's Bible commentary says the verb katneo means to look carefully, cautiously, observantly. The man carefully studies his face and becomes thoroughly familiar with its features. He listens to the word, apparently not momentarily, but at length, so that he understands what he hears. He understands what he hears. He knows what God expects him to do. Any failure to respond cannot be blamed on a lack of understanding. So we're not talking about something nebulous here. We're talking about someone who looks into the Word of God carefully, attentively, knows what it says, and dismisses it and ignores it. Why call me Lord if you're not going to do what I tell you to do? I was talking with uh, Owen yesterday. Owen uh, had an encounter with a rack of two-by-sixes. They uh, leapt out at him while his back was turned. And they proceeded to drive his face into a concrete pillar. And so he's looking worse for the wear this morning. And uh, he's telling me about this. And, you you know, I've been around construction sites. I can just imagine the pain. Okay, I've I've been through things like that. And I can imagine the pain. And he's smiling and he goes, I didn't cuss. (laughs) I didn't cuss. That's what I'm talking about by being a word doer. It's something that you've woven into the character of the way you live. Okay? It's in you. You've embraced it. Okay? If you've cussed, uh, uh, you know, there's forgiveness, there's grace, but you gotta, you got to say, have I, you know, have I eaten what God's given me to eat? Is there any character transformation going on here? And that's where it'll be tested. It's not tested here in church. It's tested there with a rack of two-by-sixes. That's where we'll find out whether you're a word-doer or just a word-hearer. Obedience is central to the kingdom of God. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burning offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken. It doesn't mean just to hear, but to hear it and to do it is better than the fat of lambs. Matthew twelve fifty. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, the same is my family. Uh, Luke eight twenty one says essentially the same thing. I wanted to reiterate it because he emphasizes hearing and doing. My family are those that hear it and do it. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Jesus answered and said, If anybody loves me, they'll do my word, and my Father in heaven will love them. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. you are my friends, we're on common ground. If you do what I command you. Hebrews 5, 9. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe that he exists. To all that acknowledge he died for their sins. No, he became the author of salvation to all who obey him. Get it? Right or you don't have anything right. First Peter four two. 
We should no longer live for the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. We live for the will of God. Christians live to do what they know God says they should do. That's what Christians live. That's what makes them a Christian. Any questions, thoughts? We've got a couple of minutes. Daniel. Um, as Americans, we're responsible to know the laws of our country. Very good. And when someone comes to enforce it, they don't tell us, did you know about this law? Did you know this? They say, you broke this law. Yep. You're going to pay a fine or they'll give us a warning. And as Christians, many times, we don't listen to the word of God. We never read. We never pray. And we just blow off God's commandment and never expect God to put up with it. But we're, we're responsible as Christians to work out our salvation, to not let it slip out. Very, very good. Okay, so Daniel uses the example of our own legal system. Ignorance is no excuse. Just because you don't know the law doesn't mean you're innocent of it. We, in our own culture and society, we recognize that. And so they come and you say, wait, man, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to grow pot in my backyard. They're going to bust you anyhow. Okay. I thought it was private property. Yeah, but you can't grow pot there. Mark. If ye continue, that's the mitigating or qualifying statement of faith. And so faith expresses itself in obeying the word of God. That's all the time we have. We'll pick it up next week.